That man's name is Sujo Johnny. has quite the story, doesn't he? He was on the 81st floor of the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11th, 2001. His wife worked on the 71st floor of the other tower. And they made it out alive. And this video is just a, a smaller portion of a much longer video that contains a lot more detail. But you saw from that video about how God has worked in Sujo John's life as a result of 9-11. Before 9-11, he and his wife were both Christians, but God was at work to draw them deeper. And then as a result of those events, God led them to, to full surrender to Christ. And that phrase, I am second, that was at the end of the video, is the idea that Jesus is first and I am second. But Jesus takes priority. And then after 9-11, Sujo John followed through on that desire to, to be more used by God and less focused on his own career dreams. And he became an evangelist to point other people to Jesus. Now back in 2004, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at North Dakota State University. And that spring, one of my responsibilities was to lead a large outreach event on that campus. And the featured speaker of that event was Sujo John. And it was, it was really a big event. Over 2,000 people attended it. It was, it was pretty cool. But in the weeks leading up to that event, one of my responsibilities as I was helping lead it was to work with a student in putting together a video with footage from 9-11 that would show just before Sujo John came up on stage just to help people remember just the emotional impact of what happened on 9-11. And as I was searching the internet for film, uh, just clips of film, uh, clips of footage from 9-11, Something just really surprised me as I was doing those internet searches. And what surprised me was that it seemed like almost half the websites I found were about conspiracy theories regarding 9-11. That almost half the websites seemed to talk about, you know, it wasn't really Al-Qaeda that masterminded those attacks. It was actually President Bush and parts of the U.S. government. Or, you know, when those towers collapsed, it wasn't just because of the impact and, and the burning of, of jets and fuel and stuff like that. It was actually because there were explosives planted in the towers that just at the right time went off to cause it to collapse. Conspiracy theories. And, and many people enjoy conspiracy theories. They're interesting to consider. Now, a conspiracy theory is an alternative explanation for something that has taken place. Frequently, that alternative explanation revolves around some sort of cover-up. That, you know, the popular explanation is not really the way it happened. Instead, there is something going on behind the scenes, some covert action to cause that event to come about. And there have been a lot of conspiracy theories down through history. 9-11 is a relatively recent one where there are conspiracy theories about what happened and why it happened. But also, for, for a long time, there have been conspiracy theories about the Holocaust, with people questioning whether the Holocaust really happened or whether it was all just staged. There have been conspiracy theories about whether Neil Armstrong really walked on the moon or whether the government forged everything that happened there. And there have been conspiracy theories about Jesus. Did he even exist? And if he did, is there any way that we know anything about him at all or, or was he just a normal man who's been elevated down through the centuries? We are in a series right now called Big Butts Easter Edition, which is focusing on objections that people have to Jesus' death and resurrection. And today we are examining one of these conspiracy theories about Jesus that asks, but what, or, but isn't the story about Jesus just a myth? 
isn't the story about Jesus, you know, just a myth? Some people think this. And that's what we're looking at today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In three weeks, we will celebrate Good Friday and Easter. And as we celebrate these events of Jesus' death and resurrection, there will be many people around us, even here in Port Washington, who really don't really care. For many people, they just kind of dismiss Jesus, saying, well, yeah, he was a good religious teacher, but, but nothing more. I, I don't really need to focus much on him. I mean, there are many people who look at Jesus with the same level of seriousness as they look at the Easter Bunny. Think, you know, that's a game that some people play, but it's not reality. And so they were looking at this idea of, is the story of Jesus just a myth? And I think it's important to understand that as we look at this topic today, this is a different message than typical here at Freedens. Normally we're taking a passage of scripture, we're digging into it, we're seeking to show how it applies to our lives today. Now today we're, we are looking at scripture, but we're looking at these topics from a, a pretty intellectual perspective. But I, I think that's valuable because it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. So that's what we're seeking to do today. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Our Father, we thank you that you are real, that you are trustworthy, that you are a good Father, and that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus and through Scripture. And I pray that in this time together now that we will grow in loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we will grow in understanding what we believe and why we believe it. And Lord, I pray that as we grow to understand more about who you are and what you've done, that then you will move our will so that we will take what we have learned and take what you have revealed to us and apply it in our day-to-day lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Corinthians 15, picking up in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now this is a rich passage that we could look at it from a bunch of different angles. But today we're going to look at it from the historical perspective and see the fact that Christianity is based on historical events. It is rooted in history, which is clear here. We see that historically that Christ lived. Historically, we see that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day at a specific point in history. And then after he was raised, he he appeared to a lot of different people, some of whom are named here, though some 500 or so go unnamed. But Paul is very clear that, you know, some have died by this point, but most are still living. And this is about 55 A.D., only about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So so most of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection were still living when Paul wrote this. So he is assuming that these events are historical. In fact, Christianity is based in history. If if these truths are not accurate historically, 
then Christianity crumbles. Because contrary to, to some people's beliefs, Christianity is not just a set, a set of religious or moral teachings. It has those, without a doubt. But Christianity is ultimately based on historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Christianity really stands or falls on whether or not these are historical events. Now, if you were to talk with skeptics, many people would question, you know what, what if it's not true? What if Jesus didn't exist? Or what if he just kind of became bigger than life as the centuries passed? And so the question is, what category of reality does Jesus fit in? Is he on one hand, kind of like Cinderella or Jean Valjean from, uh, from Les Miserables, or just pure fiction? Where someone just kind of made him up and it's been passed down? Or on the other hand, is he someone who's been kind of embellished down through the years, where he was a real man, but as time passed, kind of like William Wallace or King Arthur, the way that they are portrayed now bears little resemblance to who they actually were back then. So is Jesus fiction? Is he an embellishment? Or is he reality, kind of like George Washington or Helen Keller? Historical people that we know a decent amount about, and the way they are portrayed now is, is very accurate compared to the actuality of, of how they lived in history. So what category does Jesus fit in? Fiction, embellishment, or reality? This is a key question. And if you talk with enough people about who Jesus is, you will find that, that there are people out there who might say, you know what, I don't even know if Jesus lived. Or if he lived, can we really know anything about him? So let's dig into this topic. One of the myths about Jesus, the mythical view number one that we're going to look at, is that Jesus never existed. For instance, philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was certainly not a fan of Christianity, he wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And he said, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. Now, this view did not originate with Bertrand Russell. It actually originated back in the 1790s in France and in Germany. Now, if you were to look at historical records, we have no record of anyone before the 1790s ever doubting the existence of Jesus. People might have questioned who he was and what exactly he did, but they, they weren't doubting his very existence. But then in the 1790s and since then, there have been those who say, you know, I think Jesus is just pure fiction. And the claims that people who believe this make are that the Bible's accounts of Jesus are myths that are borrowed from pagan folklore. You know, ancient pagan religion believes in all types of gods and goddesses who all have different accounts, kind of like we have superheroes today where there are, are origin stories of the superheroes and, and different powers they have and stuff like that. It was kind of that way in ancient pagan religions where you have these gods and goddesses who do different things. And, and people who believe that Jesus didn't exist say, well, we look at this ancient mythology, these pagan religions, and Christianity is just borrowing from those and making another god or goddess, another superhero, Jesus. Back, many of you remember uh, the book Da Vinci Code. Came out as a movie as well, Dan Brown. Da Vinci Code was one of the places that popularized this view of, of how the, the, the story about Jesus has its origins in, or at least in large part, in pagan folklore. 
For instance, in this book, Dan Brown has one of the characters talking about different pagan rituals and, and talking about the apparent parallels between paganism and Christianity. And he says in here that, that there is nothing original in Christianity. That's what he has one of the characters saying. There is nothing original in Christianity. He's saying that everything that's in Christianity has simply been borrowed pretty much verbatim from ancient pagan religions. There is a view out there that says Jesus never existed. Now, it's important to understand the Da Vinci Code, it's fiction. And also, as Dan Brown has this character recounting various aspects of these pagan religions, there are a lot of inaccuracies, even in terms of how these pagan religions are portrayed. He tries to make them look a lot more like Christianity than what they really believed. But as people read this book, they're oftentimes internalizing this as true, even though it's a work of fiction that significantly twists what actually happened in history. So this is a view that some people believe that Jesus never existed, but not many. Because the vast majority of people do believe that he existed. And one of the reasons is, is simply that historical reality shows that Jesus did exist. Now you will still find certain websites and certain books out there that claim Jesus didn't exist. But as a conspiracy theory... The idea that Jesus didn't exist doesn't hold any more water than the idea that the Holocaust never happened. You can have conspiracy theories, but evidence shows that they are false. So because historical reality is that Jesus existed. Now I think it is important to recognize the fact that it is difficult to learn much about most people who lived a long time ago. It really is. Back in the ancient Roman Empire, the vast majority of people who lived back then lived and died, and we have absolutely no record of their existence. It doesn't mean they didn't exist. It just means we know nothing about them. Because there weren't photographs back then. There weren't video cameras. There weren't computer servers that are recording everyone's digital footprint and everything they're doing through the course of a day. A few people wrote histories of stuff that was going on, but there were even a lot of major politicians from back then, major government leaders who we know next to nothing about because not much was written about them. And so up until just the last few hundred years, the vast majority of people who've lived in world history lived and died, and we have no actual trace of their existence. We know they lived. We know that people were alive we just don't know anything about most people who've ever lived up until the last few hundred years because there's no, no written account, no, no lasting evidence of who they were or what they did. But with Jesus, that is not the case. Because with Jesus, there are lots of written accounts about who he is and what he did. I mean, one huge source, obviously, is the Bible. Right? In the Bible, we have four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote biographies of Jesus. Paul's letters, other parts of the New Testament, contain biographical and historical accounts of Jesus as well. But even from outside of the Bible, there is quite a bit that's been written about Jesus from that ancient era. I think, for instance, of a man named Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman uh, government official, but he was also, um, he was also a historian. He, he wrote history of the Roman Empire and in his writings, he wrote about a large fire that took place in Rome. 
in 64 AD. And Tacitus, he was writing this near the end of the first century. So still during the time where a few disciples might still be alive, a few of Jesus' disciples, but um, probably about 60, 70 years after Jesus lived by that point. And he wrote that the Emperor Nero, the Emperor of the Roman Empire, blamed a group, uh, it's about this fire, blamed a, a group, quote, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And the deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city, meaning Rome. Now, Tacitus was definitely not a fan of Christianity, but still you see here evidence of Tacitus writing assuming the existence of Jesus. And you see so much historical data in this quote that parallels what we find in the New Testament. For instance, that Jesus' ministry took place during the reign of the emperor Tiberius. That Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor when Christ died. That Christ uh, was executed as a criminal. That this occurred in Judea. And that even though Jesus died, the movement that he started did not die. And in fact, as Tacitus says, it's extended all the way into Rome, which we know very clearly from the New Testament. These are all historical evidences that come from Tacitus, an objective historian at that point, that also fit very well with what we find here in Scripture. And it shows very clearly that Tacitus knew that Jesus really existed. I think as well as of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Uh, he worked for the Roman government later in life as he's writing this, these histories, but he's writing the history of the Jewish people. And th he was born in 37 AD, so his life very nearly overlapped with Jesus' life. So he's writing pretty early after the fact of, of, uh, of what Jesus lived and did. And he wrote, Now there was about that time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the leading men among us, had, con had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him has not died out to this day. Now, there's a lot that we could draw out of that as well that lines up very well with Scripture. But again, it's another independent source from very early after the time of Christ saying very clearly, you know what, Jesus, he existed. He was a real man. And here are some of the things that happened during his life. And so these and other accounts give us strong evidence for the existence of Jesus. And this is why there are very few people, and especially practically no true scholars of history or of the Bible who believe that Jesus didn't exist. That's a myth that, that is a conspiracy theory that a few people hold to, but not many. But there is another mythical view, I'll call it mythical view number two, that is a bit more uh, common, more popular. It's that Jesus was embellished over time. And this was a view that says that Jesus lived, he was a real person, and he was a peasant. He was a, a relatively poor man, but he became a Jewish preacher, and he preached about the kingdom of God probably, and he was probably crucified because of his teachings, but we don't really know much else besides that. This view uh, has come out in a variety of ways through the years, relatively recently in a book called Zealot, 
The subtitle of the book is Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's by Reza Aslan. And this is a book that tries to apparently take you back to who the real historical Jesus was. But it's undermining um, a lot of the Bible's teaching about Jesus. And Reza, Reza Aslan, who wrote that book, this was no, number one New York Times bestseller, so it got a wide reading. It popularized this mythical view of Jesus that he was embellished over time. Reza Aslan wrote a, a recent column in the Washington Post, and he said in there that perhaps no historical figure is more deeply mired in legend and myth than Jesus of Nazareth. Mired in legend and myth. So he and others as well are pretty much saying that, you know, Jesus, he was a man who lived. He was a relatively normal man who just preached. He might have died a, a, a brutal death. But, but then it was over the centuries later that the part about Jesus being God in the flesh and Jesus rising from the dead, it wasn't until years or, or many, actually many centuries later that that stuff was added to the story of Jesus. It was embellished over time. And in this sense, the, the things that Christians believe today about Jesus are relatively mythical. They aren't true, according to some of these people. And so when we come to the, this idea of, of Jesus being embellished over time, I think it's important that we look at what did actually take place back then. The historical reality is that the Bible's description of Jesus is accurate. Now, I know that some people will say, well, Brandon, you're, you're biased on this because you're a Christian and you're a pastor. The reality is everyone comes to these topics with an implicit bias that they use as they're reading various data that's out there. It's important that we recognize our biases but do as best we can to get back to objectively what was the case historically? In this case, about who Jesus really was. And so we have to understand that, that the New Testament was written with just, within just a few decades of Jesus' life. And it did not change over time. And both of those parts of that statement are very important. It was written within a few decades of Jesus' life. And it did not change over time. Now, I do know that uh, we have about 5,000 copies of the New Testament from the first couple hundred, hundred years after Christ. And there are some errors that have entered in um, during that time just because, you know, it's copied by hand. Errors in spelling or just other areas, errors entered in. But the cool thing is that because we have 5,000 copies of the Bible from such an early time frame, scholars are able to look at them and see, oh yeah, yeah, that's a misspelling over there, that's an error over there, and are able to come um, to an accurate understanding of what was in the original New Testament with a very high degree of accuracy. And one of the other things to understand is that the Bible, and the New Testament specifically, has not evolved over the centuries. You know, a lot of skeptics think, well, it was just kind of passed down and it kind of changed. And, but what we do not find as we look back at the Bible and how it's transmitted down through history, we don't find, okay, we have these early New Testament uh, manuscripts and, and writings. And they, they present Jesus as a normal man who was a, a Jewish preacher and, and he died of crucifixion, but wasn't anything more than that. And some people think, okay, that's how it started. And then you pass down a few hundred years after that. And then, then you have Jesus becoming more of this supernatural God. And that's when he was resurrected and stuff like that. And so they think, well, maybe the manuscripts changed over time. And as you look, say, at, at 500 A.D. versus 100 A.D., there's a big shift that takes place in how Jesus is viewed in the copies of Scripture. That's not the case at all. You compare the early ones with the later ones. There's not a shift in the early ones. 
you already have Jesus being presented as God in the flesh, who's resurrected after he died. And so the scripture has not changed over time in the way that some people charge. And it was written by witnesses who were still around when they wrote this. And I mean, they, they experienced the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus themselves. Paul even refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verses 5 and 6 that after Jesus was raised from the dead, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, this letter to the Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul around 55 A.D., give or take a year or so. 55 A.D. That's only 25 years after Jesus died. And Paul is saying that there were about 500 people who saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. Only 25 years after Jesus died. Uh, No, it happened back then, but then it's only been 25 years that have passed since then. So that means that if someone was 25 years old when Jesus was resurrected, by this point they'd only be 50. And you had 500 of them almost that, that could recall that event of seeing Jesus resurrected after he had been crucified. And they could provide testimony of the fact that, yes, we saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. And the testimony of so many independent witnesses can provide so much credibility in the fact that Jesus really was resurrected. And that the description of Jesus is accurate. Think back to Sujo John. The man who had been in the World Trade Center on the 81st floor on 9-11. Imagine that someone went to him and, and started to share some conspiracy theory about 9-11. Now, he, he would not be in a position to really answer very well. Was that Al-Qaeda or was that President Bush? He, he couldn't necessarily answer that conspiracy theory based on his experience. But imagine if in 20 years someone comes to Sujo John and says, you know, I, I don't really even believe 9-11 happened. I think all those photographs are just kind of doctored and stuff like that. I went to New York City. It's all cleaned up now. There's a nice new building there. I don't think 9-11 really happened. Well, Sujo John then could provide from his own experience testimony about 9-11. How it was ingrained in his mind. How powerful that was in his life. What that was like back then. And then you could go to many other eyewitnesses who also were right there during 9-11. And all their independent accounts could provide credibility that the events of 9-11 really happened, even in the face of conspiracy theorists who may say, yeah, 9-11 didn't happen. And that's what it was like for, for these writers of the New Testament. They experienced with their own eyes the resurrection of Jesus. They saw him after he had been crucified. He was alive again. And they are providing their experiences, writing them down when there are still eyewitnesses around who could debunk them. That Jesus was alive. And then it's interesting. Let's draw this a step further. There will come a point when Sujo John passes away. His children will still be alive, but Sujo John will pass away. But even then, the power of Sujo John's experience at 9-11 has not died. The credibility of it has not passed away with him. Because his children carry that story along. His children would have been familiar enough with his accounts of 9-11 and they would know that he's reliable enough that they can then faithfully pass on the stories they learned from their father with a, with a remarkable degree of accuracy. And we have that same type of thing in the early church where you have people who were discipled by Jesus' original 12 disciples, like by Peter, by the Apostle John. You have people who then lived like second generation Christians. 
And they are testifying about Jesus as well. Let me read you one account from a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp was a leader in the early church. And this is in a letter that he wrote to a church in Philippi. Polycarp said, Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in faith and truth. And to all those under heaven who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. Now, this is just a little snippet out of the letter. But did you hear how he's describing Jesus? Our Lord and God, who was raised from the dead. This is coming from someone who shared life with the Apostle John, who was someone who had walked with Jesus and experienced his life, death, and resurrection. And so this is kind of like a child passing along the teachings of a parent, that they're able to come down faithfully. I mean, embellishments and myths, they take generations to develop and get ingrained in people's culture and their beliefs. They take generations to do that because you have to let the original eyewitnesses die off so they can't um, rebut some, some false teaching. Now this was taking place very early, these beliefs about who Jesus really was. And in fact, even earlier than what is written here in the New Testament. For instance, we have uh, the Apostle Paul. And, and I imagine that most, if not all of us, are familiar with the fact that the Apostle Paul before he became a follower of Christ, he severely persecuted Christians. And that persecution took place around 31 or 32 AD, within one or two years of when Jesus was crucified. Now you may be wondering, why is this important? The question is, why was Paul persecuting Christians? There was something about what the Christians were doing or saying that caused that severe persecution. And he was even putting Christians to death with the approval of Jewish leaders of that day. So what was it the Christians were doing or saying that caused him to be seeking them out to put them to death? It had to be something pretty bad. It had to be some sort of blasphemy. What would have been blasphemous back then that Christians might have been saying or doing? I think there's very strong evidence to think that what the Christians were saying is exactly what we already have recorded here in Scripture. That Jesus was not a mere man that he was God, and that he was raised from the dead. And when Paul heard that, to him that sounded incredibly blasphemous, because Jesus, a mere man who was crucified, cannot be God. But the, the Christians were claiming this to be true, even at the very early date, within one or two years of when Jesus was crucified. Embellishments of the sort that these mythicists uh, claim don't develop that quickly. On top of this, I mean, the writings in the New Testament were written just a couple decades after Jesus by the people who witnessed the, the events. But we have parts of the New Testament that actually predate what is actually in the New Testament. For instance, creeds and songs. There are creeds and songs recorded in the New Testament that were written before the New Testament was written. Because that was a very oral culture. Most people in the Roman Empire were not literate. And so they had to memorize things. And so things were, were put into a way that would be easily memorable, like song lyrics are, or creeds. And so, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have what I believe is a creed that predates when Corinthians was written in, in 55 AD. It could very well be from, from years, if not decades earlier. 
It says, Paul says in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So he received it from someone else, and then he passed it on. And it has the form of a creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I think the creed stops after that. I think Paul then is adding his own material. But that has the form of a creed. It has the rhythm and the, um, that word that that repeats over and over. That, the word that functioned as quotation marks back then in that culture. And so this is a creed that originated before Paul and it was passed down to him. So it originated in the very early church in the years right after Jesus. Also another famous one is in Philippians chapter 2. It's a song, it's a hymn that was probably sung in the early church that said this, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This was probably an ancient hymn that the early Christians were already singing within just years after the time of Christ. And then Paul picked up on it, put it in his letter. But as you hear what it's saying about Jesus, he was God. He took on the nature of a servant. He was, he, he was obedient even to the point of death by crucifixion. And then God exalted him. This came from very, very early, much earlier. It usually, like I said, takes several generations for any sort of mythical view to really grow and get, to get traction in a culture. But we see from very early after Jesus' life and death, they're teaching about Jesus being God in human form and that he was resurrected. Now, I think it's important that we recognize this. I mean, obviously, it is kind of intellectual, but it's also very important you may be thinking, okay, so what? Why is all this stuff important? It's important because it all has to do with who is Jesus. And that's the most important question we can ever have. And in the Bible, Jesus himself, as well as the other authors in the New Testament, present Jesus as being God. And if Jesus claims to be God, he either is God or he isn't God. Those are the two basic options. He either is God or isn't God if, if the claim is that he is God. If he is God, that means that he is Lord, and the call for us is to submit our lives to him. So that has huge implications. Now, if Jesus claims to be God, but he isn't God, then there are two other options. He either claims to be God, he isn't God, and he knew that he wasn't God, so that makes him out to be a liar. Or, on the other hand, he claimed to be God, isn't God, didn't know that he wasn't God, so he was deceived, that makes him out to be a lunatic. So it's known as the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. Now, there is a fourth option that is more common today, and that's that he was a legend, that he never actually lived. But in my perspective, when we look at all we've talked about so far today, that's not a legitimate option out here. So you come back to Lord, liar, or lunatic. If he's Lord, the call is for us to submit our lives to him. And on one hand, that's uncomfortable because then we have to give up the driver's seat. We like being in control. We like calling the shots. But being Lord means that we submit our lives to him. So that can be uncomfortable. Not many people like to give up control of our lives to God. But on the other hand, it's life-giving. Because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I mean, think about Sujo John. He talked about how he'd been pursuing the American dream. Success, 
prosperity, popularity, achievements. Those things are common pursuits, but they don't fulfill. They're not how God made us. God made us to be in relationship with him and to live with him as the source of our identity, meaning, and significance in life. And so Jesus opens up the door for that. So then, when we understand that, it becomes pure joy to submit our lives to Christ and follow where he leads us. Now next week we will return to the topic of, of big butts. We'll come back and look at, did Jesus really die on the cross? Or was he unconscious or something like that? That's another objection. But it's important that we understand really what we believe and why we believe it. As I said earlier, down through the years, Christians have, have put their beliefs into creeds, into songs, into ways to make them memorable. And one of the most well-known creeds in history is called the Apostles' Creed. And in, in preparation for concluding our service and before that singing the song We Believe, I want to invite us to recite the Apostles' Creed together. It, it's come down from the early centuries after Christ. It's come down to us. And so if you are someone... Um, who believes in what the Bible teaches about Jesus, I invite you to join along in reciting the Apostles' Creed. So I invite all of us to stand. Um, and then, again, if you believe in what the Bible says about Jesus, please join in reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Scripture, through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that, that even though we have all rebelled against you in our sin, that you have not turned away from us, you've pursued us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to love you more faithfully, to come to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength and to experience the life that's available only through knowing you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.